We are really excited to share today that we have recently begun a collaboration with an awesome company that reached out to us a few weeks ago about supporting the show and providing something that's really unique to you guys that we think will be really beneficial. Every, you know, most of the people that listen to this show are new or expecting or young mothers, and we all have, you know, thoughts and worries and concerns about what does it look like to think about our children's future in terms of education. And we know that that's such a, such a big deal in our country. And we um, have connected with this company called College Backer, which does some incredible things in helping families save for their children's college. So we are speaking this afternoon with Abby Chow, who is the, um, are you the owner of College Backer, Abby? COO, right? Yes, I'm a founder and COO. Okay, wonderful. Well, why don't you, we'll let you take it from here. What is College Backer and and what do you guys do? Thank you so much for inviting me on the show and giving me the opportunity to share. Um, So College Backer is the easiest way to start saving for college with help from family and friends. And basically what we do is, First, we help set you on the right path by choosing the smartest way to save for college, which is a 529 college savings plan. And we can talk a little bit more about the tax benefits of using that. Um, And then we also help you crowdfund it with gifts from family and friends. So we'll give you a custom link like collegebacker.com slash your child's name. And then you can receive the gift of college savings at, you know, the baby shower, birthday parties, Christmas or other holidays um, directly into the college fund just as easy as buying or receiving a toy from Amazon. So College Backer is the simple way to get started for all those parents who might be stressed about saving for college, who might be battling their own student loans and want to make sure that their children don't sort of have the same fate. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. And that's why I was so drawn to, to your company's mission, because I think that saving for college feels really intimidating to people mm-hmm. and they feel like, I, you know, I only have a small amount I could contribute. How could this ever possibly make a difference? You know, I don't know how to invest it. I mean, what do I do? I just keep it in a savings account. I think it's very intimidating for people and to both help people in, you know, getting started and in managing the process, but also giving this really cool tool to allow family and friends to be involved and to contribute to that is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely find that there are tons of people who want to help you save for college, you know. So as a parent, oftentimes it can feel um, very intimidating, as you said, and even isolating because when you go and do all this research, you're sort of doing it on your own and you kind of feel like you need to figure it out on your own and save on your own. But the reality is that there are so many people in your life that want to be part of uh, this, this process and want to actually support your child along along the way, whether it's, you know, the grandparents or aunts and uncles, or even just Mm -hmm. friends and colleagues, um, you know, when they come to the early birthday parties, for example, you know, they, a lot of times folks will realize that, you know, the kid is going to get bored of a toy or a set of clothes very quickly. um, And they want to actually be able to give you a more meaningful gift. So College Backer is all about facilitating that. Yeah, I'm really excited. I love uh, your site. I love how easy it is to kind of access information and really kind of see. I think the biggest thing the first time I 
interacted with it was just realizing having great projections of what, what is college going to cost? What does it look like? Because I think I would have no idea how much money I should be saving on a monthly basis, how much money I should be projecting to save over the, like, you know, say I'm starting right when I'm having my child or I love how you can say, well, you know, now my kid's 11 and I'm really thinking about this. And um, one of the things we wanted to ask you about was um, you guys do some matching programs or special links to share with friends. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, when, as, as I was mentioning, when you sign up for College Backer, we will automatically give you a custom link for your specific child. So um, you can go ahead and put that link on birthday party invitations. You can put that link on your baby registry um, or anywhere else where um, you might be sharing it with family and friends. And then folks will be able to go to that custom page and see you know, a photo of your child or whatever custom photo you've added and directly from that page, make a contribution into the college fund. Um, they can make it as a one-time gift, you know, for Christmas or whatnot, or they can even do a monthly recurring contribution. So maybe the grandparents want to do $100 a month, or maybe you just have, you know, a friend or an aunt or uncle that wants to put in 10 bucks a month. And all of those things um, can definitely add up over time and really increase your, the amount that you're saving overall um, for college. So it doesn't have to be just you doing all the heavy lifting, you know, even if there isn't room in your budget yet to start saving for college, this is a way for you to uh, collect um, some college savings for your child through the, the support of family and friends. Yeah, really accessing community in, in a meaningful way. It's really great. So how does it actually work? How does someone sign up? How do they get involved? What are the steps? Yep. So um, first of all, you just go to collegebacker.com and click start saving for college. And from there, you know, we'll start off with some of the calculators that you were just mentioning to help you get a sense of um, what the cost of college might be. And then we'll ask you for a little bit of information about you and your child so that we can make the right recommendation for you. Um, but then lastly, we'll give you that custom link and right away you can start inviting people to make a contribution to your college fund. So you can send direct emails to you know, those friends and family members, or just take that link, copy and paste it into, you know, Facebook or whatever, wherever else you want to share that. And so right away, very, very quickly, um, just within a few minutes, you can start saving. Um, and as part of that process, we'll also uh, take care of most of the tough financial stuff for you. So we make a recommendation for um, a specific 529 plan, as well as an investment portfolio that is specific to uh, the age and needs of your child. So those are things that kind of happen in the background. And I'm happy to explain a little bit more of how that works. But we've tried to just make that a really streamlined process for you. Yeah, I think I would ask, you know, what's the difference between doing a 529 versus setting up maybe a college savings account at my local bank or doing some of the state offered programs? Yeah. So um, just as a quick introduction to start, a 529 plan is basically uh, a tax advantaged investment account specifically for higher education or um, for K-12 private tuition as well. And so the way it works is similar to a Roth IRA. So um, you put in post-tax money and then the growth on the account is completely tax-free and withdrawals are co also completely tax-free as long as they are for higher education or K-12 tuition. Um, so that means it's a huge benefit um, that the government is providing essentially because you have this tax-free growth that um, continues can continue for you know the 18 years that your kid is growing up. And so over that period of time, your money can double, triple, and quadruple, you know, uh, depending on your investment portfolio and how the um, how it's performing. But 
it's compared to just a regular checking or savings account that's you know probably not even keeping up with inflation using this kind of tax advantaged investment tool is going to be really beneficial in keeping up with college costs mm-hmm. so what does it cost to participate with a college backer account in terms of both fees and upfront costs? Uh, you know, are there any commissions that are involved in maintaining that account or the, you know, the movement of funds? Yeah, so we have a really unique business model and it's basically uh, pay what you can. So when you start with College Backer, you can actually choose your own fee from zero to $10 a month. And the service is exactly the same regardless of how much you choose to pay. Um, so you could, you know, wow. start at zero dollars just to test things out. But then over time, we hope that as you realize the benefits of College Backer and, you know, you start seeing other people contribute into the account and you start seeing the growth on the account that you, of course, support our business by choosing to make um, a contribution into College Backer. But the idea mm-hmm. here is we wanted to make this a service so easy and so simple and so approachable that anybody, literally anybody could get started saving for college even if you, uh, you know, don't have a lot to save from the get-go. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, that is really incredible. I think that just that it's, it's such an invitation to, to start something that may feel unachievable otherwise. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And, you know, uh, one other thing that we wanted to provide to mother birth listeners is a $10 match offer to get started saving for college. So, you know, if folks go to collegebacker.com slash mother birth, then uh, set up an account and make just $10 as a first contribution, College Backer will go ahead and make another $10 contribution to match that. So when you think about assembling your College Backer team, you know, maybe it includes grandparents, maybe it includes your brothers and sisters or friends, um, but it also includes College Backer uh, itself. Well, it sounds like it's such an incredible thing that you guys have, have been building and and really reaching out into into a world that is very confusing for people and and like we've mentioned very intimidating um so we're we're grateful to be to be collaborating with you guys and and helping to spread the word about such an amazing tool um i think that just the idea of crowdsourcing college savings is is so amazing so Abby, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing about College Backer. And like she shared, you can go to collegebacker.com slash motherbirth to get that $10 match offer and to sign up for your child's 529 plan today and start sharing it with your friends and family. Welcome to Motherbirth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Today we have a really special episode to share with you guys. You may remember on social media a couple months ago, Lara and I shared about the midwifery conference that we were attending in Savannah, Georgia, which was a really fun experience for us, especially since it had been a while since we had seen each other. And we were able to go there and have a booth in their exhibit hall and connect with so many midwives while we were there for a few days. And really our main goal was to collect and share some stories of the women who have been pioneering the work 
and the advocacy of, of birth in our country for decades. We really wanted to hear the stories of people who are becoming midwives now, people who have been midwives for a very long time, you know, what has changed in our country over the decades, and really be able to share this side of things with you guys. So we actually had a booth in the exhibit hall and set up a recording station right there. So as you're listening, keep in mind that the audio quality will be a little different than you typically see in our episodes as there is some background noise, but the conversations are still really clear and really, really powerful. We're so excited to share these stories with you today. We're going to be hearing from a woman who's researching actually using peyote in labor and giving birth in sweat lodges. We're going to be hearing from a woman who has used her career in midwifery as a platform for advocacy and for feminism, and also from a woman who ran away from the army as a young woman when she was pregnant and found refuge at the farm in Tennessee where she gave birth, which led to her own career in midwifery, which has uh, spanned several decades. So we're really excited to share these stories. I think they'll be so inspirational to you as we explore the stories and lives of midwives. So this is Melissa, and we're still here at ACNM. I am sitting here with a lovely lady, Takarima. Is that how you say your name? Takarima. Takarima. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll hear your story. Yep. Well, my name is Takarima Tisit, and I was born in California. And um, my family is originally from the states of Jalisco and Zacatecas, Mexico. Mm-hmm. So we're Wiradica, Mexica, indigenous people. But I grew up Chicana in the state of California, and I've been living in New York for the past 13 years. Mm. And I'm studying to be a midwife at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. Okay. So so you have this, this kind of... Um, joint this joint experience of growing up in in the United States, but having this Mexican heritage and culture. How did that, as you were both growing up and entering your your motherhood transition years, how did that history affect your experience? Yeah, well, I grew up actually. I mean, I know my birth mom and father, but they separated when I was uh, eight years old. And then I um, grew up as a ward of the court in foster care. Mm. And the second to the oldest of eight children. But I know my mom's story, you know, I just feel sometimes us as women, we carry the trauma of our mothers because of how this system, this, you know, the country we live in now, what with, you know, the systems of power in place of white supremacy, patriarchy, mm-hmm. the colonization, miseducation of our people. Um, there's a lot that there's has lot. happened, <laughs> but I know my grandmother and my great grandmother, who she lived to be like over a hundred, and mm-hmm. she would talk about how we were indigenous people and how, you know, of all my siblings, we've all been raised like differently but I self-identify as indigenous and some you know of my own siblings might want to be more Mexican or even American Mm. you know so there's even within the family everyone's um, having this different identity identity and interpretation but it's but our roots are from Mexico Mm -hmm. California was Mexico and my grandma used to talk about 
you know, California when it was like that too, mm-hmm. because she could go back that far. So uh, there was there was a gap, but then you know I, I went off to college and uh, UC Berkeley, became a danzante, found you know the danza mexica, moved to New York, found the again dance up at the Native American Church too, and my activism in there, mm-hmm. and then uh, and, and it's all still connected to. It doesn't matter 500 plus years of colonization, miseducation. We're still our roots are still from Mexico. We still have that, you know, that ancestral knowledge, wisdom in our bloodline, and and we use the medicinal plants to help us reconnect. Yeah. And um, and now as a mother, like uh, you know, that's that, that's what I'm, I'm teaching my children too. You know, we're originally from what we call Anahuac in our language, which is the, all the Americas up here, and then Tihuantinsuyo all the way down south, mm. and teaching them, you know, to respect the culture, our culture, but also, you know, we live in the United States, so there's other ways we have to respect too. Yeah, I love hearing what you're saying about this, how how this this history and the this wisdom of these indigenous traditions that even if you are on some level separated from them in your upbringing, that they are still within you and you had this, you know, grandmother and great grandmother who were able to still instill that in you and help you realize the importance of that connection. So how many children do you have? I have three sons. Okay, you have three sons. So tell me about how how you chose to incorporate these these traditions and these values into your birth experiences yeah well when when I became pregnant and uh, thought about home birth for me the home is the Temazcal which is the sweat lodge Mm. and it's a purification home ceremony uh, in Nahuatl we call it you know to a Teocali it's like a spiritual home and so my three sons were born like that on the earth because when I think of you know my people and this land and 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 my children like I wanted them to come into the earth in the most beautiful way and that Mm -hmm. was the way they were born and now um you know we still we have the Mexica calendar which some people know as the Aztec calendar Mm -hmm. so based on the time they were born their gender uh, different elders, we send them the information to Mexico and they came up with some names. Mm. And like my oldest son, Ashayaka, his name translates to the face of the water in Nahuatl. And when he was crowning, it was pouring really hard. You wow. could hear it on the sweat. And so it just kind of flowed that way too, that that was one of the names on the on the, his charts. And um, and, and so they have that connection still to the to the Mexica traditions from birth, mm-hmm. like even with their their names. And, and then my other son is called Teo, the spirit of the eagle, and then Tlewitzin, the hummingbird of the fire. Mm-hmm. So those are those, those are, are beautiful their names. names. Yeah. And um, yeah. So in that in that birth setting, is there is there an attendant to you? Are you do you have a midwife with you? What does that look like in that yeah like tradition? We still, we still have. I mean, there's in Mexico so many traditional indigenous midwives. They don't have the titles like here in the United States uh, mm-hmm. of, of a senior certified nurse midwife, certified midwife, or certified professional midwife. But for my births, like yeah, I had 
midwives. And did you go back to Mexico for these no, births? No, they or were, you were all in the born US? In, in New York. Okay, so <laughs> where did you find this setting that that you could have that birth experience at home? Like we, um, you created we, that. We created this sweat lodge in our backyard, okay, and just for the birth. And it was a little tricky trying to find a midwife who was, you know, supportive. <laughs> was supportive. But, um, but did you then, have the same midwife no, for all I, three I births? Three different midwives. Okay. I, I wanted to have different midwives, different experiences, but they were all open to it and you know got on their knees crawled into the sweat lodge it's pitch dark in there there's yeah. a fire outside and and so i had the midwife her assistant my doula the father of my babies and and then by the time my my second son i caught him myself mm. the midwife was more just there but she was real more hands, hands off. off yeah and my first um, my husband caught him and then uh, my third my 11 year old caught the baby oh my gosh so, <laughs> so there's this really yeah. the, there's this continuity but then there's also sort of this completion this cycle yeah. this familial cycle that's happening so he was in there too towards the second and third birth but yeah. the second birth the baby was born almost closer to midnight so he fell asleep but the third birth yeah the baby was born closer to one in the morning but Asha he, he stayed awake yeah and he caught his brother that's really beautiful. So did you feel like these experiences helped to solidify the connection you had to your, to your indigenous heritage? Yeah, I feel like this, you know, th there's so many changes throughout history, you know, but I feel like this keeps me connected to my roots, to my culture. Some people are like, what, why in a sweat lodge? But that's home for us, you know, mm. and then, and, but yeah, I believe I'm studying to be a midwife. I believe too, you know, if there's ever any, you know, complications, we have to be prepared. Like mm -hmm. we have to have people who have that knowledge and experience to, to help. So it's, it's like that. But, um, yeah, I, 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 from the, I, I'm writing a book on birth is a ceremony, collecting birth stories of, mm. of women who have used, um, peyote, which is a, a sacred, you know, plant for us and in their pregnancies and their births. Mm. So I feel like, you know, I keep talking about decolonization begins at birth. And for me, my children, from the moment they were born, I try to to keep them connected to the ancestors, to the earth, to the elements, the fire, the water, the wind, you know, and, and that's how I saw it. And now, you know, into, they're 11, almost five and three. So it's mm -hmm. like keeping them connected to to the plants, to the earth, to the cultural, like Amadansante, Mexica. So to the dances, we dance for the earth, yeah. songs, prayers, and we speak English, Spanish, a little bit of Nahuatl. So trying to also, you know, remember and speak our own Preserve those. language. Yeah. Yeah. So looking forward to you, to you, what you hope for your midwifery career, how do you want to incorporate these experiences and these values and traditions into the, the space that you hold for other women? Yeah, well, in, in, in New York right now, there's a big, you know, um, Mexica or indigenous community. And I think it's real beautiful when um, a pregnant person she decides you know that how she wants to give birth not not because somebody told her it's safer in the hospital or the partner whoever it is husband or boyfriend whoever like 
their vision of it. No, I think it should be like the mom's choice of what she wants. And if it's a home birth and however she wants to do it, like uh, back home, people are doing it in the sweat lodge, in the teepee, mm-hmm. in the water, in their apartment, you know, however. Yeah, in their backyard, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> however they want to do it. And, and But finding the right support, like mm-hmm. a midwife, a doula, you know, and, and having just a good support team that's going to, and if they feel safe in, in the hospital, then, then they feel safe there. So we mm-hmm. that's fine. But it, and I that those same those same ideas can be present in any setting. Right. And that right. what a woman wants is really at the center of that. Yeah, because yeah, it's kind of like, OK, then we give birth. And then there's this big debate with the placenta, at least in New York. Some women want to eat the placenta. Others just want to take that grandmother placenta home, bury, you know, have that kind of ceremony, too. And what's and what is typical in in your tradition? In our tradition, and in our tradition, I was taught like the when the grandmother placenta was was out, then you know we put her in a like a vase of barro of clay, mm. and then buried the placenta because for us the placenta is. Is, is a grandmother, an ancestor. So mm. we don't consume or eat the placenta, but as a, you know, birth worker, I've learned like that that helps some women with postpartum depression. Yeah, um, hormonal stabilization. Milk. Yeah, their hormones. Yeah. So, so then if that's what they want, then mm-hmm. that's what they get. So, and, and, and so I know native women too who are eating their placenta as well, but it's, like I said, it, it's, it's, so many years of colonization and differences and and it's about respecting her individual choice of what she wants yeah Yeah, I love to hear that well it's 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 such a such a unique perspective you know I have I have spent a a fair amount of time in Mexico actually in the state of Jalisco and you know talk a lot with women in that area about their birth experiences I was actually just there for three months earlier this year and was able to um, have I had multiple women that were there pregnant and gave birth in the time that I was there and really realizing how within you know the current political and societal climate you know women are so disconnected from these these traditional approaches and connections to to you know the way birth has looked in that in that culture and society for you know all of time um and so it's very it's very lovely and and exciting to hear someone who has really made it a, a huge priority to preserve that, you know, that cultural element and who senses the physical, spiritual, emotional benefits of that on so many different levels. So thank you for sharing that. If you, if you could share anything with women, whatever their cultural background is, whatever their personal dreams or hopes for their birth would be, is there something you would share with women as they're, as they're considering how they want their birth to look and how, and what they want to be connected to in that experience? Yeah. I, I would just say, yeah, for all women all over the world, regardless of your racial, cultural backgrounds, to treat birth like it always was and is a sacred ceremonial mm. way of life. And when we understand like that birth is ceremony, then, you know, we try to do our best to release any fear or anything from our moms, grandmas, great grandmas or other people who instill what birth should be 
and then just give birth, you know, hopefully naturally. And then, you know, in, um, with the elements, welcoming the baby with songs uh, or whatever cultural, like, I know I've heard so many different stories from like the Maori in New Zealand, out there in Bali, um, you know, up here in North America, down Mexico, all the way down south. So many different ways in, in, in cultures that cultures that that go about it. But uh, so respecting, you know, if they want the delayed cord clamping, if they want a lotus birth, if they want, um, you know, skin to skin, breastfeed, not breastfeed, like respecting whatever the mm -hmm. mom wants, but treating birth more like that, like ceremony instead yeah. of this medical I don't know <laughs> yeah chaos it's a, it is it's, it is ceremonial it's a passage it's an invitation into this very transformational process yeah. yeah so you mentioned that you're writing a book where can people find what you're doing and stay up to date on that well right now it's been mainly through um, people that I know through the Native American church and um, they've the birth stories, though, have been coming from the ones I have currently are from New York, New Jersey, Colorado, California, Texas, parts of different parts of in Europe, mm -hmm. Colombia, Medellin. Um, so I'm on Facebook, Stekari uh, Matisit, through email. Um, but um, I've been collecting just the birth stories and the whole focus is on the use of peyote within pregnancy mm -hmm. and labor birth whether you chose to or not consume the medicine and why or why not. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's a lot of books on peyote, but there's hardly any focusing on pregnancy and labor births. So this is definitely going to pioneer that. And, and it's a small study, but it's uh, the beginning, hopefully, of something beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's that's great to hear. We'll share, we'll we'll get those your, your link to your Facebook page and share that with people so they can check that out. And if there's anyone that has a story that they want to share, then they can reach out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's a really, really beautiful story of your your journey into motherhood. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Missy Ferlatkoski. I am a certified nurse midwife that works in the Chicago area. So I actually work in Oak Park, which is um, the first village west of the city. Um, and I work for a, um, a private uh, midwife-owned practice. Okay. So, yeah, it's one of the only midwife-owned practices in Illinois. And mm -hmm. um, what's cool about it is that it's, there's no overarching um, like academic medical institution or other hospital institution that um, kind of governs what we do. We govern ourselves. And that's that. new for Illinois, right? Um, some of that autonomy? Some of the autonomy is new. Our practice was started um, by Gail Breedman 18 years ago, and she's been a midwife for 32 years, I believe. So mm -hmm. she started it um, kind of as a, she has a whole model where the midwives essentially, um, you know, we're in charge of all the patient care. We do have a collaborator, but it's someone that is definitely um, sort of, I don't know if I want to call it like a linear collaboration, sure. but they're not above us um, and we're not below them. It's just true, true collaboration. So mm -hmm. it's really cool and unique. I really like it. I really like that we can provide, um, you know, we're, there's no one kind of looking over our shoulder. A lot of friends that I have that work in um, bigger medical systems feel like residents are, you know, um, on their back or attendings are on their back and I don't feel that way at all. So That's great. So yeah. are you from that area or? Um, no, excuse me. <clears throat> 
I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan originally. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, and then I went to DePaul for undergrad, and then I um, went back home for a little while to do my prereqs for nursing school, and then I came back to Chicago to attend the University of Illinois at Chicago. Awesome. So yeah. for those of people listening who are mm-hmm. fans of our show, they know a good friend of yours. Have you tell them who's the feminist midwife? Do you know Stephanie Tillman? So yes. tell me how you guys met and how you kind of stayed yeah. sister midwife friends. Sister midwife friends. I say that Stephanie and I fell in friend love about four years ago. Four, mm, five years ago, actually. We met at a midwife potluck, which is hilarious because <laughs> midwives love the potluck. Um, but uh, a friend of mine uh, had met her, had read her blog, um, and wanted to invite her to be with us as students. And I was still in the um, nursing phase of my mm-hmm. education. So like being a midwife was sort of this dream that I was completely like on my way to and like admitted to my program and ready to go. But it was like catching babies was so far off. Yeah. Um, and she came to talk to us about her blog and about who she is. And we kind of connected pretty instantly at that um, at that event. And she had invited me to a party she was having for New Year's. And then after that, we were like, hey, you know, we should be friends because um, we uh, have similar um, kind of feminist informed healthcare and ideologies. And so that's kind of our friendship started kind of in a more professional or ideological way and evolved into something bigger. That's awesome. Yeah. So how do you see that, like, you you know, you've called it now feminist mm-hmm. kind of influence in your midwifery practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually, I have a, um, my kind of roots in feminism, I have a Bachelor of Arts from DePaul in Women's and Gender Studies, and I minored um, in Community Service Studies and then also minored in LGBTQI Studies. Um, so, so you were, like, not very busy. Not very busy as an undergrad, no. <laughs> and I, like, did all kinds of feminist things, like, I directed. Um, the vagina monologues for three years and was a part of uh, this organization called FIA, which is stands for Feminists in Action. And I was a very active undergrad. Um, but I actually, um, I took a class in undergrad called Voluntary Motherhood. Mm-hmm. And it was about um, how birth moved from the, ho- the home to the hospital and then about in the 70s, how it's moving back into a home birth, more low intervention model. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also was about the birth control movement and how that evolved. And it was taught by a family nurse practitioner um, named Ron Graff, and his wife is a midwife, and she had a home birth practice. So I did a project on doulas for that class, cool. and then I became a doula. And then once I became a doula and I attended a birth with a midwife, I was like, no, no, I don't actually want to be a doula. I want to be a midwife. Same. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I was like, I'd like to do the more. Like, oh, I'd like oh, to do the yeah. more, yeah. <laughs> like, I'll go to appointments with refugees. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I can, like, help them figure stuff out. And I was like, oh, no, I want to be the people doing the appointments because they, like, are the ones that could actually have great conversations and continuity with these people, like, exactly. instead of, like, they don't even need me. I could just be that person. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, I feel like I didn't want to necessarily play, like, the supporting role, even mm-hmm. though I was a doula for a long time and it helped sustain me when I was going to nursing school and um, kind of helped me stay in birth but it was not sort of the end game yes yes that makes sense yeah and now I really can't doula very efficiently because I want to I have to sit on my hands if I ever doula for friends of mine I was actually supposed to be a doula for a friend of mine last September um, and I was a student in the practice that she was um or two Septembers ago, I guess, because uh, I've been a midwife a while now here. Um, but uh, anyway, I was a student, and um, I was supposed to be her doula, and she arrived at the hospital at nine centimeters without me, and then I happened to know the midwife that was on call that day, mm-hmm. and instead of me coaching her through labor, the midwife was like, hey, do you want to just put a pair of gloves on and catch this baby? And I was like, sure. So <laughs> like, I guess I'm going to be the sneaky midwife I guess I'm going to be one. a sneaky midwife. I mean, it was a great birth, but I just definitely 
like this like hashtag doula fail. Like I did not really, you know, I mean, I was supportive, but yeah. Yeah. I do think unless it's literally like you are not co-managing, that's not even the right word, but it's like, if you are at a friend's birth, especially if you know that other person, it's like, there's no way to not be overly involved. It's really hard. Or, and I find myself being more, I'm never critical of providers that I don't know. I try not to be. Yeah. Cause you don't know. Right. And like, you're getting maybe a second story, maybe a third story, yeah. depending on how much you know that person telling that story. That's very subjective. <laughs> right. Um, however, it's difficult to not even just do that with like, you went to your appointment and they said, what? <laughs> right. They exactly. What? They, they told you what about that test now? What? Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also funny is that it was probably like two or three in the morning. So I mm. think that the midwife that was on call, it just didn't register for her because her brain wasn't really awake yet that I wasn't on call with her or something. It's like, that's she, thing. she saw my face and she was like, oh, hey, you're here. Do you get some gloves? Because you're here because I'm your teacher and you're a student and we'll just do this. And like, I didn't correct her. I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I'd love to catch this baby. Love Thank you. Baby. Right. I asked my friend, I'm like, do you care if I catch, you know, and she was crowning. She's like, no, I don't care. (laughs) Well, and I definitely want to ask you about, so, so the theme this year, we've talked about this already with a couple of guests is that giving voice to the soul of midwifery, which Mm -hmm. is also basically saying we need to give a voice to people of different races and backgrounds. And how do we do that as women in this profession? How do we do that as white women sitting in these chairs talking to each other? Sure. Yeah. Well, I was really pleased this year, um, especially with the giving voice, because when I attended the conference last year, I was super disappointed that there were not very many um, visual depictions of women of color. I didn't feel like there was a lot of diversity on different committees and mm-hmm. panels, and there is not a lot of diversity in the, um, the like in the higher positions of this organization, which is disappointing to me. And I think that what I really like about what's happened this year is that they are doing a lot more storytelling and nodding to midwives who came before us that are not necessarily certified, that are in the margins, so to speak, but mm-hmm. carried went rural women and women of color. Um, so I think that's super important. I think for me, because I identify, um, I identify as queer mm-hmm. um, and I'm a lesbian midwife. I think that my my lens sometimes is to include queer folks and trans mm-hmm. folks into the conversation, and yes. I don't. I think that that's lost. I have a whole thing about. It's like, yes, I take care of women, but I also take care of anyone who has a cervix or a uterus or, you know, breasts or what have you. And I don't necessarily put in the identifier as woman. And it can be a little bit hard. Um, And it's a really old argument. It's like an essentialist feminist argument. Like, you know, and I... I don't buy into essentialist feminism, but I think that some it's, it's coveted by a lot of the midwifery community is that they pride themselves on serving women. And I love serving women, but I also love serving people, yes. people who are pregnant, um, people who desire birth control, people who desire termination. Like, I think that changing that language is important. Um, mm-hmm. And another thing that's important is like, it drives me crazy, but like mother baby, like what if it's a trans man that, you know, doesn't identify as a mom, but he has to like, can't you say postpartum, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it has to become a part of our, our language, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's getting there. So I think it kind of, I, I hope that answered your question. I went off on yeah. a little no, no, no. I queer think tangent, which I do. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. If anything, that's what this is for. In the sense of, I feel like there is, all kinds of, and we talked about this with Stephanie, people go into midwifery and it's tough. It's, it it's is a tough. all in buy in lifestyle mm-hmm. and people do it because they're passionate and they love it or they just don't do it. They wouldn't do it if they didn't love it. But then your, your owningness of that is to remember the passions that got you there. So if right. your passion is to advocate for all people and to serve people and to help the people that you work with understand that, mm-hmm. change their way, like change mm-hmm. their practice and to evolve, it's on you to do that now. It's like you're on the other side of school 
Act, yeah, and you have to. It's. I think school too is a big impetus because, like you know, you have all this not all this time because you're studying, but you have more energy to do it, and mm-hmm. it's a little bit more challenging as a when you're a provider and you're like, I have meetings, fifteen, 15 and- charts to close, and I have to go to this meeting, and mm-hmm. I don't really want to sit on this conference call for X, Y, or Z organization, even though that's like where your heart is. So is that, I was going to ask you next, like, what are you doing now to kind of... Yeah. Well, I made a commitment to myself. I was involved as a student um, in nursing students for reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I helped kind of, the chapter was sort of already founded at my school at UIC, but it sort of fell off when students left. And so myself and a a woman named Mallory um, kind of had a resurgence of it. And we hosted a papaya workshop and tried to get things moving um, to do some more comprehensive reproductive health care in school. Um, And I made a commitment to myself actually to not sign up for any boards for Mm -hmm. the first year of practice Um, and I did that because I knew that I would have to learn I mean foundationally I am a midwife and when you're a new midwife there's a lot to learn so I decided that I wasn't going to commit to anything Mm -hmm. um, formally in like any kind of larger organization Um, but one thing I'm doing in my own practice is I'm trying to develop um, an IUI or interuterine insemination program within our practice Um, which is awesome because I think that access to reproductive health care from like a reproductive endocrinology standpoint can be super intimidating, mm-hmm. especially for queer folks. And it's not inclusive at all. Yes. Um, and I think that a lot of people who come in our practice, we have what are, we have um, preconception visits and we also have um, early pregnancy evaluations. Um, and so I have people come to me for preconception visits that are queer and they're like, hey, do you do NSEMs? And I'm like, not yet. I really want to, but the, the need is there for people who are seeking midwifery care, like Mm -hmm. people who are partners in your care rather than like the medical hierarchy. And Mm so I've figured out a couple different ways to try to make it work. And it's not really that hard. Like if you can put in an IUD, you can um, do an IUI. I just have to get the supplies I need and kind of the infrastructure and the business plan, um, you know, underway. Yeah. How do you, how do you then charge for that and open? I know those are are the things that will just kill you. And for people listening, you know, (laughs) what the traditional thing would be is if I want to go for midwifery care, but I need IUI, mm-hmm. I would go see Missy and then she would have to send me somewhere else where right. I would have that entire experience. Mm-hmm. And then once I was pregnant, then I could come back. Right. And that's so, it, it's so funny too, to me that like conception, like people arrive, it's very, it's a very straight model. Mm-hmm. You know, people just assume, well, you'll either have sex or you'll go see your, you know, reproductive endo or whomever, and then you'll come back to us. And I think that that's a missing piece that midwives are entirely capable of doing. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have really, um, you know, a complicated infertility history and you do need, you know, IVF or something that requires more procedures that we don't do, that's out of our scope. Okay. But with IVF, IUI or even intravaginal insemination, like people don't necessarily know how to do that at home. Like they can, but, and you know, it might work, but it might not. And I think that it's completely within our scope to do. We just should, I I feel like should just start doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of one of those, it's, it's, it feels similar to me, like providers, um, people who are trying to have APNs do like more abortion care. It's kind Mm -hmm. of along the same line. Like we have the skill set. It's just that we need to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, like you mentioned, there's just, there are things in 
that are barriers, but they are accomplishable ones. Or like if they're hoops to jump through or hurdles to do, you can do it. And I think if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us. And I think that's just the essence of meeting wonderful midwives is we want to figure out what, 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 what can we do next? What can we do next? Yeah. And I think also I should mention, I'm very well supported. Like part of, I actually mentioned starting an IUI program, um, in my interview for the practice I'm in now. And I'm really, because I think because I'm in a midwife led practice that Mm -hmm. thinks independently that, you know, essentially my boss was like, develop a business plan and show me what you're going to do. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And it's great because I have the freedom to do it. And I'm, you know, talking to our collaborator about what else might need to be signed and, you know, done so that billing makes sense. But I feel like I'm really lucky in that it's kind of inherently feminist the way that like I go about my practice Mm because it's, you know, led by a bunch of people who are like minded that are like, sure, just make this happen. Not, I have to petition, you know, this board from this part of some hospital to approve it. The approval is pretty. It's not like fear based or consequence based. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, I want to ask, is there anything you would say if we have queer listeners yeah. to say, this is why you should choose midwifery or why why you feel like midwives are open? Yeah. I mean, I feel like midwifery sort of inherently, I mean, um, it's hard for me in my brain to separate my queer um, mm-hmm. identity from like my feminist identity. Those are kind of interchangeable mm-hmm. for me. Um, but I mean, I think that we need a lot more providers that are competent mm-hmm. in caring for people that are on the like LGBTQI spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the sort of compulsive um, heteronormativity gets in our way. And I think that although um, relationships are powerful, you know, between any partners, I think that male, like male, female partners are coveted or normal to Mm -hmm. people. And so um, making it normal to be a queer midwife is something that I think that I I really try to do, you know, like on my bio on our practices website, it's like, you know, Missy practices yoga and cook and likes, you know, hanging out with her wife, Sarah. And so it's just, it makes it more normal. So I think that people need, um, it's a way, I think access is an issue. I think Mm -hmm. that visibility is an issue. And I think that even though there are straight providers that would be totally fine, you know, taking care of queer women, they don't necessarily make that apparent. It's just kind of, they happen to be kind, you know, they happen to be kind because they're midwives. But I feel like for me, you know, I have so many friends that I go like, oh, well, they're these, these are three people that I think would be great. And it's because I know them. I've worked with them as a nurse. I have had them take care of my queer friends. And so it's that kind of like underground. It's not because like on their website, they're like, we are a practice that welcomes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's, um, I wish that it was it's kind of, I wish it was mainstreamed in a better way, but mm-hmm. it's not. And I think that also folks sometimes hesitate, um, whether they're queer or trans, they don't want to come out because they're worried about what the community, you know yeah. what I mean? Cause it's not normative, but I've had a really pretty good experience being out, you know, to mm-hmm. patients and out to, I'm definitely out to my practice and out to pretty much, you know, out to the world, but it's, uh, people assume, I mean, it's still people assume that I'm married to a dude, you know, yeah. it's just kind of how that goes, but. I don't know. I think that I would encourage anyone that's interested in midwifery. Um, it's it's truly that you are a partner in someone's care. And I think that that's what a lot of people desire. And we need a lot more queer providers, trans providers, providers that are, you know, open to everyone. I totally agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. So fun.
Hey everyone, it's Melissa here. I'm here with Mary Rose, and Mary Rose it has a very interesting story to tell us today. Um, we were just talking about how we, so you know, we're so disconnected these days from the intergenerational wisdom that has been a part of our species, you know, since the dawn of time. And um, we are really excited this week to be hearing from so many midwives who have been holding this space with women for such a long time and who have so much to share with those of us that are younger and at the beginning of our, our motherhood and perhaps our midwifery journeys. So Mary Rose, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So let's see. I am from, I grew up in California and I've been um, a nurse there for 30 years and then I became a midwife and moved to the Navajo Reservation okay. for eight years. And then now I have a job in Las Cruces, New Mexico on, okay. the, on the border, La Frontera. So let's rewind all the way to the beginning. Why did you decide to become a midwife? <laughs> um, well, I, I went I actually went in the Army when I was 16 years old. I signed up delayed entry wow. for nursing training. My, my mother's a nurse and my father is a doctor. Okay. And I wanted to be a nurse like my mother. And the Army offered me education. And it was just after Vietnam, so we were not at war. Mm -hmm. And I had this crazy idea that maybe I could teach them that killing people was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll change them all. <laughs> I did. I thought I could change the world. They yeah. did tell us that. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I went in the Army and got some training. I was a medic and a pharmacy tech. The nursing training was full. And so I took pharmacy, which actually helped me in my nursing training. Mm. But uh, the Army was not very good to me. Mm. Um. I got raped a couple of times, and oh the second gosh. time I went to the commander, the commanding officer, and he told me to my face that um, what other use was a female in the military. Oh my goodness. And, and so you had n nowhere to go from there. W w yeah. I had to stand in formation every morning with this individual. Wow. And um, it, it was really awful. And, um, and you're still, how old are you at this point? How old was I then? Yes. 18. 18, okay. I turned 18 in basic training. Okay. So you're in this position where you, f you probably are feeling trapped. Fort McClellan, Alabama. Fort as McClellan. A matter of fact. Okay. As a matter of fact. Yeah. Yes. So you're, you're, do you feel trapped? Do you feel like this I is... was absolutely trapped, yeah. and I didn't know what to do, and I, and I felt like they would kill me. Mm. And I got pregnant, and I got out. Wow. And I didn't know if the baby was from the rape or if it was from a guy I liked. Mm -hmm. But I decided it didn't matter. Mm. I was going to love my baby. And it was symbolic of life mm. from all that death and destruction. Yeah. And I tried to go home, and I called my mother, and I tried to make a joke, and I said I swallowed watermelon seeds. And I thought that was kind of cute way to tell her, but she was not amused. No. no. So, so now you have family that's not. I mean, did they? They did not supportive? welcome me back no. home. Wow. You made your bed. Mm -hmm. You figure it out. Wow. Is what she told me. Did you ever really share the full story with her? I did. Yeah. But I think it was a different generation. Yeah. And yeah. she was pretty cold to me. Yeah. And she did not welcome me home. 
And I had a spiritual communities guide, which was a book that was going around in the 70s about all the communes and all the communities that were springing up. And I had read Spiritual Midwifery. Okay. Where did you find that book? Um, San Francisco. Okay. That's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And the way Ina Mae talks about having a baby is so beautiful. Yes, it really is. And she changed the world with the way she talked about really having a baby. Did. She really did. Yeah. And I just knew that it would save me. And I had nowhere to go and I had nothing. But it didn't matter. The people at the farm welcomed me. Wow. I wrote to them and they said, come, we'll take care of you. If you can't take care of your baby, we'll take care of your baby. Wow. It, it was so different from my family's response. Yeah. So you went to the farm, and how how I, far along in your pregnancy were you? I took a Greyhound bus all the way wow. from California and um, and landed in Tennessee. And um, the, I, I lived in a house with two midwives, Kara and Jerry Sue, mm-hmm. at, at a place called the Adobe. Okay. And I just I just came from the farm. I was at the farm two weeks the ago. The Adobe so doesn't now, exist anymore. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the Adobe, but I I got to actually see um, some of bun- the big houses, some, some of the houses, some of the original mm-hmm. birthing houses. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I just lived there for I got there the end of seventy. Um, he was born in eighty, so I got there the end of seventy nine. I lived for there in the house with them for six months before I had my baby. They got to know me. I got to know them. There were five families living in this one big, huge house, mm. and we shared cooking and we shared watching the kids and and the guys chopped the wood. It was kind of sex, um, gender jobs, definitely yeah. gender roles. Yes, that's what um, I've heard. Yeah, and kind of hierarchy. Hierarchical. Yes, yeah. it was a little weird. Yeah. yeah, a little patriarchal. There were there were some things I definitely I never really understood Stephen and his. <laughs> I've heard a lot about that recently. Oh my god! I just I don't know. I didn't really get it, but but they welcomed me and they're yes. good people and they took care of me and they didn't know me from Adam and right. I was crazy from the army because the army was not a good place. Yeah, it was not, and I don't think it's changed very much in all these years. But, um, so so I I. I thrived there and I grew there and they took care of me and I'll never forget the generosity of spirit mm. that was shown to me. Yeah. And must have been so healing. It really was. It was one of the best times in my whole life. Actually. Yeah. And and I was I was never the only thing I was afraid of is if I had to go to the hospital I thought I would die. Mm. I I just knew I wouldn't make it if I went to the hospital. Mm. And but they had an ambulance parked right outside any birthing house yeah. to transport if needed. So I felt completely safe. If my midwives had told me I had to go to the hospital, I trusted them completely. Yes. I would never have um, refused or anything like mm-hmm. that. But they um, they just hung out with me and took care of me. And somebody, came, I was alone. I didn't have a partner. And somebody came over and gave me a massage when I was in labor. And one of the midwives who's here, who's now a PhD at UNM hmm. instructor and research something or other fancy, she was my doula. And she just was so kind to me hmm. and stayed with me. And I wasn't alone. And I had a long labor. I had a nine pound, eight ounce baby boy. Wow. 
and I was calling I love you baby as he's coming out it took me a long time I didn't know what I was doing yeah (laughs) and it was hard and I had a I had to get up and do that modified anime Gaskin maneuver yeah because his shoulders got a little but they didn't really get stuck Mm. once I got up they came out and there was no panic and 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 my son is a really gentle soul what a gift and he's an amazing man now what a gift to come from this place in your life where there was this forceful you know aggressive painful male energy that that was such a significant part of that season of your life and to choose to you know to really go into that experience and to love this child and and to have that gift of his of his spirit wow that's really incredible and that also says so much about both the you know the love that you nurtured for him and also the environment that you chose to to create for him mm-hmm. yeah how impactful those things are yeah oh thank you for that <laughs> yeah and my whole goal was to to raise a gentle man mm. And I think I have succeeded. He's a good man. Yeah. And he's bright orange. (laughs) He had no hair when he was born. He had orange fuzz like a beard. Oh. I cried. (laughs) Wow. But. Wow. But it turned out that he was from the guy I like. That's wonderful. So (laughs) that was kind of a gift. That was a gift for sure. So this sort of sets in motion this desire in you to become a midwife. What did that journey look like? So so I stayed at the farm for four years and I, I worked in their pharmacy and I started doing midwife assistant apprentice. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't work out that I stayed there and I ended up taking a bus back to California and I became a nurse. Okay. And I worked as a nurse to nurse to nurse to support, to support, support my kids. Always in the mind of going to be a midwife. Yeah. Always. And, and I could, I tried to figure that out. It took a long time, but I'm not a fast track kind of person. Right. I wanted to build a foundation. Yeah. And, um, I worked as a nurse for a really long time and I, I learned a lot of kind of, I think like basic, uh, basics that really have helped me. Yeah. And I don't mind being a nurse first. I, it's kind of, it's who I am. And there's mm-hmm. lots of paths, and I really figured out that there's not just one way to do it. Yeah. There's lots of ways, and they're just different. They're not wrong or right. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's Absolutely. Just, we all have our own way through the world. Yeah, and we all contribute something different to that space. And, and different women need different yes. approaches. They need different, you know, qualities. They need different... Um, skills you know there's so many different things we can bring I I always imagine myself out in the middle of nowhere and what would would I know what to do Hmm. and I I did get to do that so I became a nurse and I worked in the San Francisco Bay Area Kaiser Oakland all the way long time saw a lot of stuff worked with a lot of different people I learned about bullying and nursing which shocked the heck out of me I never knew that could be allowed and, and I always was searching for that sister midwife thing, mm-hmm. like at the farm, and, and it was never like that. Although I did develop It's so some, rare. It's so hard, and I don't know why women are so hard to each other. Yeah. It, it's very um, sad. It's very sad. But, um, and I, I don't know. I don't see myself as the brightest bunch, but I, 
I so I don't really understand that whole politicking and the mean girls thing and mm-hmm. that it it eludes me. Yeah. And I that maybe it makes you feel better or smarter or prettier or something. Yeah. I don't know. I've never I, competed in that arena. Yeah, I mean, compete is the right word, and I think that that's really what's at the heart of it. And when you look at what, what it has looked like over the last, you know, 100 years for women to kind of have a seat at the table and in, mm-hmm. in this grander scheme, which is so, so, so important at the same time, that's a competitive space. Mm-hmm. And that is a space that everyone knows, like, there's only so many seats at the table, or that's the perception. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only so there's many seats enough. at the table. Yeah. And yeah. so if there's not enough to go around, I'm going to have to compromise perhaps my relationships or, you know, the, even my integrity, perhaps in some situations, to be able to have, to ensure that I can can be where I need to be. And I think that that is 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 like you said it's so sad and unfortunate because it really is the ultimate disconnection from who we are as women and what we actually offer which is connection which is community which is this mothering spirit and and that it's you know sounds like something that you have remained connected to so i think the disconnect from my mothers put me in search for like i that little story are you my mother are you my mother oh yes (laughs) so i've been in search for my mother for a long time and i found her in so many places mm. in in some of the relationships I have and the kind of mother that I am. Yeah. And the women at the farm gave me um, belief in myself. I became strong in myself. Mm. And I delivered a nine-pound, eight-ounce baby boy with their help. Yes. At but home. you did that. And I did that. And yeah. I'm still proud of that. 38 years later, I'm so still proud of that. Yeah. And I can help another woman do that. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to get there. I became a midwife in 2006. Okay. I finally got my master's. Um, and, I, and I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, I and, bet you are. And I'm starting to teach now, which is mm-hmm. really wonderful because I'm starting to get tired too. Yeah, yeah. But... Well, and we talked about that intergenerational wisdom earlier and for you to enter that season of your life where, you know, regardless of the length of your midwifery journey, you've had this lifelong journey of learning and, and healing and growth and sharing space with other women. And now you get to be in a season where you can share and pass that on. You mentioned that you um, worked on a Navajo reservation for a few years. Was that when you were a nurse? Is that since you've been a midwife? That was my first job as a midwife. Okay. And what, what was that like? So um, I was making top dollar in California as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I got certified as a midwife. I tried. I almost tried not to be a midwife because it didn't work out for me to get into UCSF where I wanted mm. to go. And um, my daughter needed me in high school way more than I ever thought a high school, <laughs> yeah. a child would, but, um, so I had to delay it, but it kept pulling me back and pulling me back. And finally she graduated high school and I, I got into school and became a midwife. And the first job I got, um, was out on the res and I, I was so happy to get the job. I knew that the salary wouldn't be very much. So I didn't even ask what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had lower repayment. That was great. And I just moved out there by myself. Hmm. And as a midwife, and I got three days of orientation because the midwife before me wanted to leave. But I was, was like, ready. I was so yeah. ready. 
because it, it took me a long time to get there, so it was mm -hmm. fine. It was a wonderful place to be a midwife mm. because it's midwifery-led service. Yeah. And the doctors are there if we need them, and if they don't, if we don't need them, they don't bother us. Yeah. And it was very wonderful place, and the the culture embraced me, and I found family, and I got adopted. <laughs> oh wow! And, and they actually built a sweat lodge for me at my house now in Las Cruces, and they come visit, and we do um, quarterly sweat lodge ceremonies. Yeah. So we just chatted with a lady who um, is from Mexico and really incorporated her indigenous traditions into her three birth experiences where she actually gave birth in a sweat lodge. So was that something that was Temescal, part of the Temescal? Called. Yeah. Uh -huh. Was that part of the experiences that you interacted with at all on the reservation? We use sash belt. So they hold on to a sash belt while they're pushing. Okay. And they can get in any position upright, but yeah. it's in the hospital. So it's not not in the Hogan. Okay. And they don't really birth in the sweat lodge. They do a cleansing afterward. Okay. So the culture is a little bit different. Yeah. But they still, they, they use that heat and that steam and it's healing yeah. and... And it's a connection. I always feel like I'm going back in the womb when I go into a sweat lodge. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what it's very symbolic of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you feel like you learned from that, from that culture and from that experience on the reservation in relation to what it, how it enhanced your midwifery perspective? So one thing is that there's a completely different worldview. So the compass in uh, Anglo compass is has north at the top. Mm. Navajo has east. Interesting. So it's a completely different way of looking at the world. Yeah. And I feel very honored and humbled and fortunate to be able to have been there and to um, have been at the gateway because. Um, as a white person going to the res, you have to, you totally have to recognize that it's not your land mm -hmm. and I'm not there to tell people how to do anything. Right. I'm there to be available to them as they need me. Yeah. And um, I learned a lot of, we have traditional medicine right alongside Western medicine in yeah. the hospital. We can do ceremonies at the bedside. We can burn sage. What a great integration. We can do the untie the string ceremony, mm. which is wonderful. What is that? So if the labor seems long or things aren't going well, you have to make sure nobody in the room has their shoes tied. Ah. And then you do a slip knot kind of thing on the belly and there's a song I do not know the song but we had somebody on the cell phone sing the yeah. song while we you then you pull the string and undo all the knots huh. and the baby comes and I've seen it work a number of times wow and I don't know how that or gives why, me chills <laughs> but it works yeah and I think it relaxes that person yeah. who's used to that mm -hmm. it's this there's a there's a release that happens and and that is it, it, whatever the ritual is there's something about that connection and that that mm -hmm. sense of um of of trust really mm -hmm. that that may be waning or fading and it and that can and bolster that in that release yeah that's really beautiful so coming back to this theme of kind of just the, the wisdom that you've gained over your life and you've had these incredible experiences, you know, this very traumatic early 
experience in the army and then choosing this very different path for yourself and and like creating that for yourself you you had to make that happen and so the energy that the creative energy that that required of you to seek this peaceful safe environment for you and for your family it's really really incredible and then and where that took you into into allowing yourself to open open yourself to other women on their journeys. Um, is there something that you would share with, with women, with young women, with people who are, who are becoming mothers, who are young mothers, for people listening to the show who may be birth workers in some capacity? What would you share that you have learned in your life? What would be the, the theme of your, of your journey? I think some of the things that I've been through have enabled me to be more, to be able to hear between the words. Mm. Um, and I can recognize when like uh, somebody else has had an experience that's difficult. And I know how to, I think if, if I can just, oh, it's really hard to explain, but it's kind of just be calm mm. and kind. Yes. And, and patience is hard because I know I wanted to do everything in the beginning all at once. Yeah. But I took a long time for a reason. Yeah. And I, and I kind of was okay with that. I did hospice oncology first because mm-hmm. that's where I was needed. Yeah. And, and my son told me um, that I gave him a good work ethic. Yeah. And that's, that's powerful, you know? It is. Just from him watching me work. Yeah. And something that I'm really sort of sensing in our conversation is, again, coming back to that, that, you know, the wisdom that that accumulates over a lifetime is this sense that maybe more now than ever in our culture, we feel this pressure to, you know, to become something to, you know, to achieve, to succeed and to, to sort of fast track, mm-hmm. you know, our, our success or our journeys or, you know, to maybe um, override the, the painful experiences in our life and kind of just like, let's just move past this. And I love that what you're, what you're sharing really highlights that our journey is, is happens over a lifetime. And there's so much to come in every stage of life. You, you know, your 20s aren't all that matter. You know, your 30s aren't all that matter. Right. There's so much life and creation that yes. happens over the course of a life and that some of your most beautiful years can be in your later decades. Yeah. I love being a grandmother. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Mary Rose. It's wonderful. I'm glad you stopped by um, and I'm glad you had the courage to sit down and share with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. It was so amazing to sit with these women and actually be in their presence and absorb the wisdom that they have cultivated over decades of practice in our country. And you can check out the links to any of the work that these women are doing at the show notes on our website. You go to motherbirth.co. It'll be episode 68. And again, you'll be able to see any of the work that these women are doing that you want to check out. You can also connect with us on Instagram at motherbirth.co, where we'll be sharing other behind the scenes stuff on this episode, future episodes, and all kinds of other inspirational goodies. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. 
In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.